So in this seven-week series, Proclaim, uh, we're looking at what the early church proclaimed about Jesus. We're going to discover in that there's a consistent message of sin and grace and salvation in the name of Jesus, that uh, showing the crucifixion and the resurrection to be central to uh, faith, to faith life and to what, who and what we are. And we know that like during the pandemic, right, you know, in the very, very beginning of the pan- pandemic, especially the politicians and leaders made daily proclamations, right? You know, non-essential employees stay home, restaurants and bars close, schools shut down, parks closed, stuff like that, which I always thought was kind of ridiculous. Why, why close a park? I don't know, it's kind of stupid. Anyway, but, uh, e- but all of those proclamations related to the idea of protection of those people that it affected, right? Now, the proclamations in Acts all, all had in common this, this idea of the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus, which, if applied, we know has a profound effect on us and a profound effect on the people that uh, are within our influence. And so today, we're going to begin with Peter's first famous sermon found in Acts chapter 2, delivered at Pentecost. And if you want to turn to Acts 2 now, you can do that. Um, it's also, so Pentecost is also known as the Feast of Weeks, or Shavuot, if I say it right, or Shavuot, it can be said, uh, and that's all outlined in Leviticus chapter 23. And it's, it's the second of three solemn feasts um, in which all Jewish males were required to uh, travel back to Jerusalem to attend. So everybody's gathering in Jerusalem. And it gets its name from the fact that it starts exactly seven weeks or exactly 50 days uh, after the Feast of First Fruits. Since it takes, uh, since it takes place exactly 50 days, uh, it's also known as Pentecost, which means 50. So the Feast of First Fruits, which is Easter Sunday for us, right? Uh, it's Easter. It happens during the week of Passover along with the Feast of Unleavened Bread that's practiced for like eight days over Passover. And this was practiced this year from April 15th to the 22nd. I think it actually may have ended on the 23rd um, of this year. But in, in the Feast of First Fruits, Israelites were to give the very first gleanings of their harvest which was difficult to do, right? Because it was, they, it was like giving their all. They weren't sure if they were going to actually have a har- harvest in the future to come in because it depended on future rainfall. So it's like giving all of what they had at that moment, not knowing where your next meal would come from, so to speak. Now, the Feast of Unleavened Bread commemorated the bread that they had ate as they had left Egypt, and we've talked about that over the last few weeks with our little illustration there. Um, and the Feast of Weeks was the festival of harvest, seven weeks, you know, harvest time, seven weeks later, which is June 5th this year, if I'm not mistaken. And it was more lavish, and it was much more celebratory, given that the whole harvest had come in, and they were celebrating God's full blessing at that time. So, just to summarize, Passover begins for eight days, and all the while the Feast of Unleavened Bread is being practiced during that time. And three days after Passover begins, we have the Feast of First Fruits, which we call Easter. And then 50 days later is the Feast of Weeks, uh, uh, or Pentecost as we know it, uh, occurring uh, you know, then and celebrating the great harvest and God's blessing on the people and all that kind of stuff. 
And because the Feast of Weeks was a pilgrimage, now this is important to remember and to think about, so please pay attention, right? Because the Feast of Weeks was a pilgrimage festival, uh, when Peter was speaking, when he was preaching this little sermon that we're going to look at today, he was addressing people from all over the Roman Empire, right? That's Acts 2 verse 5. All the known nations of the world had gathered there and they were all represented. Very important point. Because what we find out is that Jesus was actually very smart. Did you know that? <laughs> Did you know Jesus was smart? He was a very pretty smart guy. He had called his followers to go and make disciples, disciples of all nations in the Great Commission found in Matthew 28, 18 through 20. Only 10 days before this feast, when he ascended into heaven, right? His last command, our first concern, we like to say here at 6-8, in which he said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them all that I have commanded you, and surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. That's the Great Commission. That's your calling. That's my calling. That's all Christians' calling throughout history. And so in doing this, in, in proclaiming this 10 days before, Jesus made it easier for them in, beginning, in the very beginning of their ministry by bringing all the nations to them. Have you noticed that? Can you, can you see that? So all these Jews who had been scattered, right, in the diaspora, they had been scattered out. They had been living out there among, uh, you know, all these outlying areas among other nations would now come back for this festival, having taken on the various thoughts, customs, languages. They had been enculturated into these host nations out there. And they were back for this festival. And there were the disciples having just witnessed Christ's crucifixion, Christ's resurrection, and Christ's ascension, and they all had their marching orders to go and make disciples of all these nations. This is God's purpose for us right now. It's very clear all throughout Scripture. You, argue me, you can argue me all day long, but I am right. I like to be right. But it's brilliant if you think about it. It's brilliant. So those who had gathered there heard sermons like Peter's and they accepted Christ, they accepted this message, and they would take that message back to their respective nations, sharing the gospel story in their own languages, in their own sort of customs or whatever. And we'll see that a lot did, actually. Just prior to Peter's sermon in Acts chapter 2, God did, had poured out the Holy Spirit, right? We know this, and, 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 and power on the disciples, and they had begun speaking the gospel in all of these various languages. Now, I don't know if they were actually speaking those languages or they were speaking whatever they were speaking and those people just heard it in their language. I have no idea. Seems like that might be more the case. I don't know. Because there's only a few of them, and there's a lot of different nations. And everybody's hearing it in their own language, right? But this is sort of a gracious upstart to the work of kingdom building, that work that we're supposed to be doing today, uh, right now, taking the gospel to every single ethnic group. Because when Scripture talks about nations, it's talking about ethnic boundaries, not political boundaries. So not America as a nation, 
but people groups, ethnic groups, you know. So looking at verses 5 through 11 in Acts chapter 2, it says this, Now there were staying in Jerusalem God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our own native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, uh, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, Visitors from Rome, now listen to this, both Jews and converts to Judaism. So there were converts to Judaism. People were coming to faith over the history of Israel, right? There were on-ramps for that. You gotta understand that. A lot of people think there wasn't before, but there was, and there was always a way to have an on-ramp into Judaism. Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazing, this is absolutely amazing. Now, we're going to hone in on the last part of Peter's sermon, starting in verses 22 through 36 of of Acts 2 there, where he gives three appeals relevant to those that are listening. Uh, First of all, he he appeals to the power of Jesus, then he appeals to the historicity of Jesus, and then he appeals to Scripture. So, if you're not already there, open with me to page 744 of your pew Bibles to Acts 2 starting in verse 22, and follow along as I read. Keep it open on your lap, because I'm going to keep reading uh, piecemeal here and there. It says, fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. So they had all seen it, right? Verse 23, this man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. Now stop there for a moment, and uh, we're going to read more later, but Peter refers to Jesus, and these are important details. He refers to Jesus as a man or this man, right? And it's important to remember that Jesus was both fully God, but also fully man. He was a real historical man with power to do miracles, signs, and wonders. He was crucified. He did die. He was dead, dead as a doornail. They stuck a thing in his side. He bled water, which means he was dead. And he was buried, and then he was raised to life. He came back to life. He ate with people. He drank with people. He touched people. People touched him. And all of this is by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. We remember that Jesus had clearly said these things would happen all throughout his ministry. People maybe didn't get it, maybe didn't believe it, I don't know, but they later on, the, the lights are going like, oh, wow, I, now I understand what he meant. You know, like I would have been the same way. I shouldn't make fun of them. But it continues with Peter appealing to Scripture, quoting a prof, uh, prophecy from David in Psalm 16, 8 through 11. It says, David said about him, I saw the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand and I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad. And my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest in hope 
because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead. Now this is a prophecy about Christ. You will not let your Holy One see decay. You have made known the paths of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence. Then he says, fellow Israelites, verse 29, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried and his tomb is here today, right? But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne, namely Jesus. Verse 31, seeing what has what has to what was to come, sorry. He spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah that he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay. God raised this Jesus to life and we are all witnesses of it. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has put and and he has I'm sorry. I'm having a hard time reading this morning. Uh, the promised Holy Spirit and has, been, has poured out what you see, now see and hear. All right, so stopping again there for a minute. Uh, we see that Peter appeals to this fulfilled prophecy of Christ in the Psalms. The fact that this happened in their recent history, of which they're fully aware these people were all there. They had all seen it. This is only weeks after the crucifixion had occurred, right? Seven weeks. They had all witnessed it. Or they had all, they all at least if they hadn't seen it with their own eyes, they know somebody very close to them that they trust, or a lot of people very close to them that they trust, that saw this happen. This is a, not such a huge society that you can't get away from that, right? So they witnessed this. And he continues with another appeal from Psalm 110, verse 1. He says, For David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. And so this first appeal from Peter uh, he, that Peter makes is from the experience of the power of Jesus, right? The power of Christ. Saying that Jesus was a man, Jesus did mighty works, he exhibited power of which everyone there was fully aware, miracles in their midst. They had seen them. They had been close to them. They could probably go talk to Lazarus who had been raised from the dead. You know, these are people that they can see and touch and, and be around, right? Peter, Peter doesn't have to prove the power of Jesus to these people. They had been witnesses of it themselves, which is kind of amazing. Now, we are not eyewitnesses, are we? We haven't met Jesus physically. I have not met him. But we do have experience and knowledge of our own transformation in life. The person that we were versus the person that we are now, uh, the person that we've become. The new creations in Christ, the old is gone, the new has come, as 2 Corinthians 5.17 says. And our personal testimony, that's our personal testimony to his power in our lives. And this is Peter's personal testimony, so to speak, firsthand experience pointing to the power of Jesus. And personal testimony requires honesty. You know, I once was this, uh, but now I'm like this because of Jesus, right? It's not, I'm not telling my story to impress you 
or impress anybody else. I'm not the center of the story. It's not about me. It's about Jesus who delivers. It's not Jason's biography that we're trying to tell. We're, ta- we're talking about Jesus and what he's done in the world. Too many people make their testimony about themselves, don't they? We point to him, not ourselves. So Peter does this really well, I think. Now, there are many other modern stories that abound in the world, the people that have come to Christ these days. One is of a young Kenyan Muslim who, uh, whose father was an imam. He's sort of like the pastor of the mosque, right? And he himself was the muezzin, the guy that makes the adhan he, of his father's mosque. The adhan is the call to prayer. The blah, 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 blah. You know, you, you hear that. Well, I lived with it five times a day, every day for nine years. But... Um, but uh, he, he grew up trained in Islamic schools, uh, Islamic teaching, t- telling him to hate Christians, even beat Christians if necessary, that all Christians were worse than dogs, right, that we were just dogs, that avoid them at all costs. If you think they don't teach that, I knew the language and I heard it, I heard the sermons. Every day, all day, five times a day, you heard these sermons. Uh, they do teach that. I'm, I'm not... I'm not I'm not a, I I have firsthand experience. You probably don't. Anyway, but uh, I still love him. Still love him. Just saying. It's not a religion of peace. Anyway, I want to back up. I'm pissing somebody off probably. But uh, he grew up trained in these schools, right? And he quickly grew to be a well-known apologist, right? Uh, Or a missionary for Islam in his region. And he was... He was considered by the Christians to be dangerous. Like people didn't want to be around this guy. They didn't want to talk to him. Um, one day he went to do the adhan, though, to make the call to prayer at the mosque. And when he went up to the microphone, nothing would come out of his mouth, miraculously. And he was really, he didn't know what to do. And he, told, he went downstairs, got his friend, told his friend about it. And, you know, and he could talk to his friend. It wasn't a problem then. He says, come look, watch. When I go do the, the adhan, I can't, I can't speak. Went up the stairs to the microphone, goes to speak into the microphone to do the call of prayer. Nothing comes out of his voice. But when he talks to his friend, he's fine. So his friend says, I'll take over. You go home. So he goes home and he makes some tea to relax, right? Because that's what we do to relax, some of us. But when he poured the water into the cup, it came out like blood. So he's really freaked out. He leaves his house and he's walking around town, really confused about all this. And he sees a Christian missionary preaching the gospel from the back of a truck, a pickup truck. And he stops from a distance and he listens to the guy. And this is what he said. He said, after the man had finished preaching, I felt compelled to approach him. Now, the, the other people didn't want him to approach him. They, they tried to hold him back. But, I, but uh, anyway, he said, he shared the gospel with me. And again, right then, I, or, or right then, and right then and there, I can't read this morning, jeez. Right then and there, everything felt different, he says. I saw everything that happened that day in a new light. I knew God was the one who wouldn't let my voice come out. The one who turned my tea blood red as a symbol of Christ's blood spilled on the cross for me. The Holy Spirit changed my heart and I gave my life to Jesus. Amen. He spent the rest of his days, the rest of his life, uh, on the run due to a death threat that his own father had put out against him. 
yet he has preached Jesus faithfully from that day forward, uh, being jailed and beaten at least five times to this day uh, for his faith, counting it all as joy for what Christ has done in his heart. Amen for that, right? There's another story a little closer to home. Uh, of the author of the works of his hands, a scientist history or a science, scientist journey from atheism to faith. His name is Cy Gart, if I say his name correctly. He's a biochemist who, uh, taught, who's taught at New York University, University of Pittsburgh, and Rutgers University. And he writes this. Members of my extended family were, given or, or, were union organizers and left-wing radicals. My parents had even been members of the American Communist Party. Now, I want to say, I'm not sure that the Christian belief system, the Christian worldview, can be communist. It cannot be. I'm sorry, but we'll talk about that later. I'm a little bit fired up this morning. Sorry, you guys. But there's no way that you can justify being a communist and being a Christian. I just don't get it. Um, but anyway, my indoctrination, he says, my indoctrination into the dogmas of communism and atheism was deep and long-lasting. He, is, he is, describes how God uses his own sort of like scientific curiosity to begin to question life even more so, at, which eventually led him to explore faith. And he writes, I was beginning to seriously wonder about the whole religion thing. I met Christians who were smart and scientifically minded, as if we are not, right? Uh, and, and for the first time, I attended a church service, and I was surprised. Nobody glared at me with suspicion, and I heard no thundering condemnation of sinners. The pastor spoke about the power of love, and people shook my hand, and they wished me peace. And it was all quite beautiful. And what's... You know, like, gosh, for goodness sakes, if you could just get people into church, they might be just as surprised, right? But he continues. He says, then I read the Gospels, and I had another shock. I found them to be beautiful and inspiring. They carried the ring of truth. The book of Acts struck me as actual history. Well, Go figure, right? And then he says, not at all like the fictional account concocted to enslave the, ma the masses as Marxism taught him. Soon after, he was on the Pennsylvania Turnpike. He's driving down the road, and he describes a very powerful experience that he has, and this is what he says. I felt a chill up and down my spine, and I could hear myself speaking in my mind, preaching, in fact. I could see an audience in front of me. I pulled the car over to the right lane, and I slowed down. And it was not a vision exactly, but it was very intense. I knew I wasn't making the words up. I was listening just as much as the audience was. I talked about G how G or knowing Jesus loves me with a voice full of passionate uh, emotion. I assured the, the crowd, whatever their sins might be, they were, they were no worse than my own. And because of Christ's sacrifice on the cross, we could all be saved. I explain God's love is more powerful than any other kind and anyone can have it without deserving it. And at some point during this experience, I had pulled over to the shoulder where I sat behind the wheel crying. I had never considered the things that I had been saying. Some of the concepts were unfamiliar. The only explanation I could fathom was that the Holy Spirit had entered my life in dramatic fashion, 
So I said, thank you, Lord, I believe and I am saved. Thank you, Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Miracles today, the Holy Spirit moving today, drawing people in. And the good news is that Jesus and the book of Acts is history as Sai noticed. Not fairy tale. Not fairy tale. I'm surprised whenever I I speak sometimes. I'll I'll get somebody that emails me or calls me and says, well, it's not really history. Yes, it is. Yes, amen. It is history. The book of Acts happened. Happened. Jesus was a real person who came and lived and was crucified and died and rose from the dead which is the next appeal that Peter makes, the historicity of Jesus in verses 23 and 24 and 32 and 33. You know, he says, he was handed over, killed and raised, and we've seen it, Peter says. Gospel proclamation is rooted in a firm point in history. Not something that we vaguely sort of suggest may have happened at some point in time. No, it happened and we know when it happened and we know who it happened to. It happened outside of Jerusalem when Pontius Pilate was governor and Rome was in charge of the known world. It happened and Peter makes that point clear. Josephus, very highly respected Jewish historian of the first century wrote towards the end of the first century. uh, He said, now there was about this time. Now this is a Jewish historian writing this. There was about this time Jesus, a wise man, if it be lawful to call him a man, for he was a doer of wonderful works, a teacher of such men as received the truth with pleasure. He drew over to him both many of the Jews and many of the Gentiles. He was the Christ. He even calls him the Christ. He was the Christ. And when Pilate, at the suggestion of the principal men among us, had condemned him to the cross, those that loved him at first did not forsake him, for he appeared to them alive again on the third day. Jewish historians writing this. As the divine prophets had foretold these and 10,000 other wonderful things concerning him, and the tribe of Christians so named for him are not extinct to this day. For goodness sakes, the guy rose from the dead and he wrote about it. There's a citation from another non-Christian historian, Julius Africanus, who alludes to a reference by Thallus, an early early, uh, Greek historian, to the darkness which had covered the earth from noon to 3 p.m. when Jesus was crucified. You remember that story, right? And he says this, Thallus, in the, in, in the third book of his histories, explains away this darkness as an eclipse of the sun, unreasonably as it seems to me. Unreasonable because a solar eclipse cannot take place at the time of a full moon, and it was at the season of the Pascal full moon at which Christ died. It was impossible for it to be an eclipse. But it was prophesied in the scriptures to happen. Why does it matter? Why does any of this matter that the crucifixion and resurrection are grounded in history? It matters a great deal. It shows us that God cares enough about our world 
to enter into our own history, choosing a certain time, a certain place, certain people, and, and they, that these things actually happened. By the way, you can't argue away the resurrection. You cannot. People have tried over the years, and they have failed miserably. They cannot get around the facts. Read the books. There's some back there. Gosh, if, if we really grasped this, wouldn't it make a difference? The dude ro- rose from the dead. It's a big deal, right? God loved creation enough to enter into our suffering, to pay the cost for our rebellion, to overcome the effects of sin and death, to save us. Amen. Can I hear it? Amen. Amen to that. Finally, Peter makes an appeal to Scripture. Sorry if I'm too wound up this morning. Verses 25 to 35. The the point of appealing to Scripture is for people to understand that the resurrection of Jesus was true and it was from God, right? The point on which everything hangs is that Jesus rose from the dead. It doesn't matter if he merely sort of did mighty works among them, right? That didn't stop people from crucifying him, obviously. He did a wonder, all these wonderful works. They still nailed him to the cross. It doesn't matter, matter if they were eyewitnesses to his death. Public executions were very common, right? He wasn't the only guy crucified that day. What matters is that it all ended in his resurrection, It all ended in him coming out of that grave on his own two feet and then asking for fish. And because he rose, the apostles now have God's Holy Spirit poured out on them at Pentecost, which is why they're able to speak so boldly to the crowd that day. And then finally, Peter gives the audience, the good news of the gospel in a very interesting way in verse 36. He says, therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. You know, it's really easy for some to read an anti-Semitic sort of tone in that. you like, you Jews killed Jesus. Peter was a Jew, Right? Tim Keller points out, rather, he says, this is part of the gospel message for every human being. Until we see that our sins cost Jesus his life, that we we were the cause of his death, me, you, and everybody back then, were the cause of his death, we're not going to be cut to the heart, he says. The gospel without repentance of sin is not the gospel. Peter wants to make sure that all of his hearers understand how their sin made them participants in the crucifixion of Jesus. He wants the words to cut to their hearts so that they will repent and commit themselves to the Lord. And that's exactly what happened in verses 38 through 41. He said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Repent, be baptized, confess Jesus, and bam, whammo, you get the Holy Spirit, right? Verse 39, the promises for you and your children and all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. And 3,000 people were added that day. 3,000 from all those various nations. And the goal 
of gospel proclamation is always to tell his story, which is true history. His story, which is true history. What you're being told is history is bunk. It's crap. This is the real history. You've got to start believing that. You've got to start rejecting ideas. You've got to start taking every captive thought to Christ. And we're going to be talking about that over the coming weeks. Remember, the day that Christ rose was the feast of first fruits. And in 1 Corinthians 15, 20 through 25, it says this about Jesus. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all who are made alive, right? But each in turn, Christ the first fruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. So we here at 6-8 believe very clearly of the resurrection of the dead. We're going to be resurrected. If I die tomorrow, if I get planted in the ground tomorrow, I will be resurrected when Christ returns. Amen. Amen. Then the end will come at verse 24 when he hands over the kingdom of God to the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. He is judge. The last enemy to be destroyed is death for he has put everything under his feet. He will reign. He is king. He's not a, he's not a democratic president. I don't get to criticize him like I do my presidents. Ooh, boy, I'm going to sleep today. <laughs> that last part in, in that, by the way, is what we heard from David in Psalm 110, verse 1. And this use of the idea of the first fruits is very intentional. Over the past weeks, I've you know, we pointed out how important the timing of these events was, right? And how Jesus was in control of all of this situation. Even though it looks like it was done to him, he, he, he orchestrated this. And I hope you start to see that so clearly that you can't get away from it. Christ was crucified at Passover, which commemorated the blood of the lamb without defects, which saved Israel from slavery. During Passover with the Feast of Unleavened Bread, that was you know, celebrated, which speaks of the urgency to take in this message quickly because you're being born into a new life. Then he's raised three days later as they celebrated the Feast of First Fruits, a time when people had to give the very first fruits of their harvest everything they had since they were never sure what the harvest would bring later. I give my all to Jesus when I come to him. And then as the Holy Spirit is poured out and Peter preaches, it's the lavish celebration of the, the Feast of Weeks which celebrates the bountiful harvest. And 3,000 people are added that day. This is all by design. If you're a follower of Jesus, you see that everything points to the crucifixion and resurrection of Christ as central to faith. Everything is pregnant with meaning and foreshadowing. Timing was paramount as a result. 
The proclamations of the early church emphasize over and over and over again the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. It's worth asking. It's worth asking yourself, how important is the resurrection of Jesus to us? Do we tell this story with such knowledge and such conviction or such passion? The story which we should be excited about and that we are certainly called to bring to all peoples. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for this Easter season just passed. Thank you that you are King of kings, you are Lord of lords, that you alone could do all this. You alone could knit together this history. That you alone could, could be so patient with people, flippant and t- you know, turning away and not getting it. We praise you for the fact that when we recognize this, all we do is confess with our mouth and believe in our heart and bang, we have your Holy Spirit within us. It's not difficult, it's not costly in the sense that I gotta give my house or my bank account, but it is costly in the sense that I have to give my all to this, everything I am. You are such a good God, and this is such a powerful story. In Christ's name we pray, amen.